0: Hello. Yes.
1: We're good. Hello. Thank you all for coming. This is um, The Nocturnist on Shame and Medicine. I'm Sam Osborne. Uh, I'm one of the producers at The Nocturnist. For those who don't know, The Nocturnist is its really a storytelling platform for all kinds of folks in the healthcare industry, nurses, surgeons, doctors, to tell their stories at live event tours, on a podcast, and for the purpose of this event. For a 10-episode audio documentary series called "Shame and Medicine: The Lost Forest," um, this team, some of whom are here today and some are not, uh, we worked on this series for two years. And basically, it gets into how deeply rooted shame is in the healthcare field, and how also it's maybe very necessary and also very damaging. Um, and I think when we were making it. Every week we'd have these production meetings and we would talk about it. We'd try to figure out how to unpack these questions, how to frame these stories, how to kind of like unpack these ideas. And we realized that these conversations were as valuable as the stories themselves. And so we tried to find a venue where we could kind of have that kind of conversation in public and um, open it up. So let's introduce the panelists. Um, First, we have, she is an emergency uh, medicine physician in Rhode Island and teaches at Brown. She also started her own podcast, Doctors in Litigation, The L Word. This is Gita Pensa. <laughs> Next is an internal medicine physician at UCSF, but we all know her as the creator and host of The Nocturist. It's Emily Silverman. <laughs> and finally, we have a, uh, his physician at Duke, and he also runs his own shame research practice. He's a leading researcher in the shame world. Um, it is Dr. Will Bynum. So, I mean, I don't think when kindergarten teachers asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up, we said we wanted to be shame experts. But here we are. Um, and I wanted to see how you guys became shame experts. And maybe the best way to do that for, for anyone who wants to is to kind of share a shame story. This is something that kind of comprises the podcast and, and might give us some context into like what we're talking about. Will, do you wanna restart? Yes, sure.
2: Um, so, the, the being known as the shame guy around my parts is something I've had to really embrace and grow into. And, and as you mentioned, Sam, it's not something that I predicted I would find myself immersing in uh, as an academic physician. Uh, and, and really, I stumbled into it through a pretty profound shame experience when I was a resident in family medicine um, and the, the long story short is that I, I made a pretty significant error that, that really hurt a patient badly during the, the childbirth and um, it, it, it came at a time when you know, my skills were underdeveloped my sense of self and my sense of um, professional identity was very much in flux um, and very nascent and and I had some natural self-doubt as a, as a you know, emerging healthcare professional that, that, that this experience really preyed upon. It, it sort of catalyzed what was initially feelings of um, um, and not knowing my worthiness or capability or talent in medicine, and, and really catalyzing the belief of my unworthiness, of the fact that I didn't belong in healthcare, um, that I wasn't good enough to meet the responsibilities being placed on me. And, and it was an incredibly jarring experience, and I didn't know what it was at the time, and that, that made it... All the worst. Um, and, and like so many people, I think I, I came to discover shame in the aftermath through Brene Brown and her TED Talk on Shame, which really was transformative for me to have a name, a definition, something to normalize the experience, and, and through which really I i uh, came to uh, this body of work and to exploring what shame uh, means and how it's experienced uh, in medicine and in medical education. Uh, and so that. Uh, over a number of years brought me to um, this amazing group of people and uh just phenomenal experience getting to be quote unquote the shame expert um on the team wanted to and we should we should acknowledge Luna the um, from the uk exeter who is our other shame expert and disability in mind the only thing i'll say before i hand it back over is that i don't really see myself as a shame expert um, I, I just see myself as someone that maybe has thought about and immersed in this topic more more than the average person. I think all of us have expertise in this emotion because it's such a human, normal part of our experience, albeit one is very challenging.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's a shame expert, is what we found. It's like everyone has experienced it. Everyone always will. Um, Edith, do you want to go?
0: Sure. Hi, everybody. So I'll start off by saying that I'm actually, am I an honorary machinist? I'm not actually sure. an going to stop 100%. Um, I came to the team through uh, an episode that I did in this shame series uh, called On Trial. And my uh, entree into this world was as a physician who was being sued. So um, I, a very, very long story, um, but I'll try to abbreviate um, what was 12 years of litigation and two prolonged jury trials. Um, into just saying that it was really a transformative experience, and probably the first seven or eight years of which um, I was utterly destroyed, but trying to continue to go to work regardless. And somewhere in there, uh, when I hit um, it, pretty close to rock bottom, I think, with just, you know, depression, shame, isolation, you know, the first thing that happens when you're sued is that they tell you don't talk to anybody. Um, but we're never actually taught about what happens once litigation begins. Uh, we're taught about like, risk management, which basically means here's how not to get sued. And the implication is once you are sued, well, if you were a good doctor, you wouldn't need to know. Um, so even if it happens to the grand majority of physicians at some point during their careers, which it does, uh, we all sort of suffer in this these, these silos um, of suffering and admonish not to talk about it with anybody, except that we just don't have any words for the experience, no preparation, and no role models of anyone who's gone through it. Um, so uh, about year eight or nine, I started becoming very interested in um, how to get better. Like how, and it started with just how do I feel better? How do I move out of the space? What is this that I'm feeling? Is there someone out there that can do this better than I can because I am not doing this well? Um, And that became um, a real journey, Um, and then in 2017 I started, a year before my second trial, I started interviewing physicians in secret about their litigation experiences and then collecting them into what would turn into a curriculum, an audio curriculum, on how to navigate both the practical and psychological aspects of malpractice litigation. Um, which really the theme over and over again is shame, isolation, and a real um, assault on your identity as both a physician and a human being. And it was through that that I wound up getting connected with um, with Emily. Um, sort of, it was a story about something else unrelated to litigation, but then um, we wound up finding each other. And so um, that's, that's my journey through shame. Um, and no, I don't consider myself to be a shame expert either, um, but I have gotten to the place where I know it when I see it.
1: Don't feel pressured to share a story about it. <laughs> How did you get into this? Well,
0: <laughs> I don't have a single shame story that catalyzed my journey, like my friends here um but i felt like going through medical training there were just a million little micro moments micro stories one of them i do talk about in the series which is about a needle stick when i was a medical student on my surgery rotation i stuck myself with a needle by accident in the middle of a case in the operating room and i knew i was supposed to like get up and wash my hands and call the needle stick hotline but i was too ashamed and i just stayed in the case for another um hour or so and there's all these complicated reasons culturally about why I did that and and kind of the shame that I internalized and things about power dynamics and hierarchy and medicine and the learning environment and that's in the episode that we have on shame and learning but I also feel like more broadly um, I've had an inner journey like I think most of us here, just thinking about shame and how it plays into uh, people who are attracted to the medical profession to begin with Um, people often compare medicine to the military like it's not just a job it's an identity and part of um, your professional identity formation is that whole military like we break you down and build you back up kind of a thing and so because of that there just is a lot of um, You know, reasons why uh, shame hides in in people in that profession. And that can be related to the profession itself or to things that happen in life unrelated to the profession, but we're able to kind of seek solace in this identity as like a physician. And that, you know, gives us maybe a sense of security that we don't have in other aspects of our lives. And so I've just been really interested in exploring the clinician psyche. Um, I am a physician, but a lot of this applies to other types of healthcare workers as well. We had um, the voices of, PAs, nurses, and um, actually a, a administrator on our series as well. Um, so it's all throughout healthcare, but definitely um, in physicians in particular.
1: I, I mean, I came into, I'm not a doctor, so I came into this really only understanding shame as this kind of like big amorphous thing that was more related to like religion than anything. Um, so I wonder if we could just like define shame, you know, for the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's you, Will. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, there, there, are, um, there are various ways that shame has been defined and, and theorized about and written in psychology. The definition I'll give you, the simplest definition, comes from the, the, the body of psychology that sees shame versus the emotion of guilt in a self-behavior distinction. So shame being an emotion that occurs when we engage in a self-evaluation. So we think about who we are as people, often in response to a triggering event, And we conclude or we feel about ourselves that there's something globally deficient or flawed or unworthy um, that that has led to the occurrence of that triggering event. So when I felt shame after my error, um, I saw and felt about myself um, in a very negative global sense. I was incompetent, unworthy, um, stupid, not talented, um, not hardworking enough. Whereas when we feel guilt, uh, we, we attribute the triggering event to something specific, something beha- behavioral or circumstantial or situational, such that um, when I made my error, I had been awake for 24 hours. It was only the second time I'd ever done the procedure I was doing. Um, I was new. It, it was actually an obstetrical emergency uh, where this occurred, and the baby was dying. And, and interestingly enough, save the baby's life, but I hurt the mom in the process. All of those are reasons for the current state of that event that hadn't, didn't really align with me the whole person and were things that were more modifiable um, or circumstantial outside of me. So shame is that global negative self-evaluation. And, and, it can, and it's normal. I mean, it's important just as we talk about shame, recognize that it is a normal emotion. It has evolved and hung around for the hundreds of thousands of years of our existence for a reason. And it's because it, it serves a very important function in our society and our group belonging. It's one of the most powerful signals that we have transgressed with a norm, transgressed uh, outside of the a group, um, and, and it's one of the most powerful motivators of behavior to, to reorient ourselves back to that group, back to those norms. And so we need shame. It's very important that we have the capacity for shame, but, but it can be very easily pathologized, um, it can become it can become deeply entrenched and intense and often inappropriately experienced, if not um, wielded as, as, a, as a tool or a weapon to drive the change. So it's the shame that we, that we struggle with and that can become pathologized that we're really talking about engaging with in a healthy manner to find more resilience.
1: Gita, did you, did you feel like that's... What he just defined, is that what you felt when you were going through the 12 years of the litigation? Did you feel it in a different way?
0: I would not have been able to put a name to it, you know. I think it there's just this sort of blizzard of emotions that, when you feel that degree of just disruption in your life and identity, it's very hard to just reach in and pick out one. Although it's very helpful when you learn how to do that, you know. But um, get a name it to tame it, as they say. Uh, but I really just felt it as sentences in my head. You were not meant to do this. You are not a good doctor. You should be doing something else. You should um, be investigating other things to be. Maybe you'll be something else. You should not talk about this. You should not share any of these emotions. And I should not be feeling like this about this event because nobody talks about it, and it seems to be that everybody else that this is happening to, numbers-wise, must be able to handle it and I cannot, and that's a recurrent theme in medicine too. Is that there's shame? You know, shame is baked into how we learn. It's just completely baked into the culture. Uh, you know, everywhere else in this conference, you are going to hear things like failing fast and you know, growth mindset, and uh, that is not what we do in medicine, right? So you make a mistake, you are a failure. You, you hurt somebody. You're going to kill somebody. You are bad at this. You shouldn't be doing this. Except that you have loans or you are just on this path and there's a huge sunk cost and you just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and just hoping that everyone's just going to kind of let you stay into your job and that you don't hurt anybody. Um, And so I I wouldn't have been able to put that definition to it, but when I finally came to it um, and in this evolution of my sort of first being the person in crisis and then at least having some insight to put up my head and say... I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't know what this is, but I, I can't be like this. Um, and then starting to look around and say, and there's shame in this too, especially in medicine, um, to say, I need help. Like, who out there can help me? There's got to be somebody out there who does this better than me. And, you know, we are, we're just super trained to have this mindset of independence, n- not needing help, feeling bad if you do need help, not... Wanting to show anything about needing help, um, and that was really that was really the evolution. But this internalization of just feeling so bad about yourself, um, and that you've dedicated your life to something that everybody thinks you're crap at. So what
1: does that leave? Yeah, Emily, you brought up training being something that with this shame. I don't know if it starts there, but I think you're right in that what struck me is that shame is built into medical training in and the way shame is built into like military training and, and really no other kind of like professions have that built into it. Can you talk about like how training is where shame starts? Is it where shame starts in the medical profession?
0: Well, if you ask Will, <laughs> yeah. Will looked at residents and that led him to med students. So then he looked at med students and then maybe you can speak to this better than I can and realize that a lot of this actually starts in early life. A lot of this starts in pre-medicine, and um, we'll have him talk about that in a second. But I'll just say that I, I do think we arrive at the gates of medicine shame-prone. And that has to do, like I said, with potentially the types of people that the profession attracts. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. Um, and that may change over time. But I do think we arrive you know, already with so much of our identity entangled in our achievement and in our perfection you know, maybe we're the golden child of our family. We've always gotten straight A's, and so that's kind of you know the foundation of our self worth. Or you know, maybe we have people rooting for us. We don't want to let them down, or you know, whatever it may be. Um, and so you show up with all of that already, uh, and then and then the culture reinforces it, and so um, it kind of becomes this vicious cycle uh, where you're surrounded by people who have that mindset. The, the leaders have that mindset, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of chicken and egg, like, when you think about people and culture, because the culture is an epiphenomenon of the people, but then new people come into that culture, and then the culture changes the people, and so, um, I'd be curious how you think about that, Will, like, sort of the dialogue between the collective and the individual, and, and how that all works.
2: Well, there, I mean, medical training is a huge socialization process, I mean it's, it's, um, it's an institution, and it, it not only has a culture, and it not only has these uh, distinct environments, but there are ideologies that inform the nature of that culture, the nature of those environments. And those ideologies are often invisible to us. They, they sort of call us into being in the ways that we become physicians. And and some of those ideologies are really challenging. I mean, the, the failure um, or imperfectionist failure that, um, that uh, who you, who, because of who we are, is so tightly linked to what we do that, that in order to be fully self actualized, you have to be good at what you do. You have to be great at it, and in, in many um, in many arenas in medicine, you have to be perfect at it. And and whether that's a true ideology or one that is just mutually agreed upon, that is one that preys on I think physicians' psyches and self evaluations and, and well being. What we found in the pre-med students that we interviewed about their shame, um, was that many of them do arrive at the gates of medicine having developed certain contingencies of self-esteem in the field, that these are are sources that make them feel worthy or feel good about themselves as people. And one of the most sort of powerful of those is what we identified as performance-based self-esteem. So feeling worthy because of the way that I have performed or what I have achieved. And and I think this is very normal, and healthy in a lot of ways, but but this relationship between performance and achievement and self-worth is reinforced over and over and over in pre-medical training, in in medical school, and in residency. And and one of the most challenging times is when when students traverse from the the environment where they're graded, where they have numbers that tell them how well they're doing, and thus they have clear markers of their self-worth to the more clinical learning that happens later in medical school and in residency, where there are no more numbers, where the only way you know how, how you're doing, and that's how to feel about yourself, is the feedback you're getting, the treatment you're receiving from other people, how other patients do, and, and the fact is that patients die, that we do hurt people, that we do make mistakes, that learning is, is absolutely an imperfect endeavor um, and, unfortunately, in our, in our culture, there's a lot of mistreatment, a lot of humiliation, a lot of intentional shaming that happens that sort of layers on the complexity of that ultimate self-evaluation of, of how am I doing and do I belong here? And it just becomes very, very complex to sort through all that and be a medical learner at the same time. So, the, I do think some of the shame that is experienced in medical practice does start it reinforced in medical school but but if we really want to understand and grapple with it i think we have to go way way back probably as early as early education in our family lives.
0: i was just going to add that um, what you just described feels to me like a pressure cooker um, you know like you're sort of right on the teetering on the edge and then it doesn't take much for it all to come crashing down whether it's an error or whether it's a lawsuit um you know these are events in life that you know we'd all like to think that we can absorb with grace and kind of manage and navigate through um but what we see again and again uh especially in the series is is just how it all comes crashing down and you know we really want to be able to to move toward a culture where where we can have some more um resilience which is a word that i I, of mixed feelings about the word resilience, but in this case, I think it's it's actually a great word because it's all about being able to absorb those impacts, whether it's failure or, or whatnot. Even something as simple as a bad test score, or even as something like a not perfect test score, <laughs> it's amazing when you drill down like how um, those little moments, you know, they they. Uh, Reverberate in people and and really lead to a lot of distress. We we're not expecting to have as many stories as we received on standardized tests and test scores, and we were just flooded with these stories of testing. And we had to do a whole episode on shame and testing. And so that was something I didn't expect. So even at the level of the of the numbers themselves, um, less than perfection can lead to like an identity crisis. So um, yeah, we're really primed, I think, for uh, catastrophizing. Yeah. And that pressure cooker, I think, when it tends to really blow up is when there's the threat of whatever you are ashamed about becoming public, and then you are going to be judged. And so with litigation especially, it's this fear of I'm going to be front page news or everybody knows that this is happening and everybody's judging me for being a bad doctor. And what was inside is now like for everybody to see. Like My shame is going to be fully visible by everybody around us. Um, or if it's an error that's really catastrophic and people are talking about it or just that that feeling of like okay what was inside is now like i'm just you know standing here naked and having everyone throw stones at me is the feeling of like that's what's going to happen but what i want to say is that when you there's so there's a difference between someone knowing your story and judging it and feeling like i'm going to be judged for it um and then what the have done and what I try to do in my podcast, which is inviting someone to talk about the thing that is bringing you shame in a way that perhaps makes you feel like it will be met with, met with empathy, right? Because that's what we're learning, I think, with the research and with Bernie Brown's work is that when shame, when you're able to tell your story and it's met with, understanding and empathy that's when change starts um and that i think is the heart of why we're interested in this and why why we do this and so one of the things i do is i'm a coach for defendants in litigation and so by now i've probably talked to hundreds of physicians who are going through this and that's not something that existed um when i was going it just wasn't no one there was no one to talk to. There was nothing to do about it. And so now these development of peer peer support programs and coaching and things like that is all brand new. But I think that what I'm hoping is that we're laying a foundation for open conversations like this and for people to be able to come forward. Every time I speak, someone comes up afterwards and says, can I tell you about when I was sued? And I think it's just... I think it's just amazing. So inviting these people to tell the stories about the sandice Test is going to change the future of how people feel about standardized tests. Inviting people to talk about their error is going to change the way they feel about talking about error in the future. So that's the hope.
2: Can you make one comment about the pressure cooker? So I think when we talk about shame, it, it automatically takes us to a, a much deeper, intrapersonal level. Shame occurs at the level of the self and self-evaluation and something that's a very fundamental human um, place to be, how we see and know ourselves. And as I've been a, in medical education my whole career and, and currently a program director, I have I've experienced and I have executed in many ways as a leader the pressure cooker that is medical training and that actually is healthier, life well, and healthier. And that pressure cooker is often thought about as the, the how hard the work is is the long hours spent in the library, is you need to perform and you need to publicly um, present yourself in a way that's worthy of trust and patience from your colleagues, et cetera. But there's another dimension of that pressure cooker that is not talked about, and that is the pressure that I feel to be a certain type of person in this environment, to project myself in a certain way, to feel about myself a certain way, to feel worthy. And that, um, that pressure cooker is largely internal that's not one that we acknowledge, that we talk about, that we intervene on. While we do try to address things like burnout and, and the, just the rigor of the profession and the training, what we're not attending to is the pressure people feel to be a certain type of person. And we had a participant in a, um, one of our studies, a medical student, who was by all measures a top student. She was just killing medical school. And when we got into the interview, she talked about how much incredible shame she felt as she went through um, the process and she she said it's like it's like who I am as a person like you did, it's like this really thin glass ball big glass ball and at any moment it can drop so I am constantly trying to hold it prevent it from dropping but if I hold it too tight it'll shatter and so this this kind of precarious state of existence that we live in intrapersonally is one that I think we just need more space to explore and talk about, um, so that maybe we can reduce some of that pressure and, and make it okay to be whatever we are, whoever we are in this profession.
1: I mean something struck me when you're talking about training is that you're climbing a ladder for so long in med school. Like, there's always another rung, there's another test, there's another like certification you have to do, and then you become a doctor and there's no more runs. You're just sort of floating out there with all this sort of like expectation you're, you're used to having check marks that kind of validate you when you enter the profession of actually being a doctor are you kind of like lost is there just sort of this like empty vacuum you're exploring and there's no you know daily or whatever check mark you have to hit
0: well i i was an er doctor i am am an er doctor um and so for this it was a relatively easy sort of way to gauge like did i manage everybody in my department did anybody die um like did i did i make it through today like those those bars were lower um i think but i imagine that um we still carry that fear of you know what i know i guess is that we still carry that fear of somebody greeting us and judging us and finding us to be lacking Um, And so I did have those metrics of like any given case you just like did I you know Did I do all the things I was supposed to do for sepsis? Could I have done? The difficulty is when you have bad outcomes and you don't know how much of that is you versus the disease that you were up against And people love to think of medicine as you know, there is a standard of care. There is an algorithm It is like flying a plane. Everybody should just follow a checklist Um, and I dispute that. I think anybody who practices medicine will tell you that most of the time we operate in the gray. And we're collecting data and try to synthesize things and think about it as best we can and avoid our biases and put all of it together and then come up with a course of action in the gray when there would have been, like, probably three other choices that we could have made at at any one time. we develop this sense of like, okay, I have judgment. I'm pretty good at this. I can, you know, but on any given day, we're questioning ourselves 10, 20, 30 times in the course of those eight, 10, 12 hours of like, I think this is the right thing to do, you know? And then hoping, hoping that it is. And so the ultimate judgment is when something happens and you feel like a better doctor would not have allowed this to happen, whether or not that's true, who knows. Um, but there isn't someone there telling you, like, no, you did okay. Like, you did everything you could do. That has to come from in here, and it's really hard. Um, and then, again, my lens is through litigation. So the answer always is, when something bad happens, you know, okay, you're going to get take the blame for it. Everybody in the world says this is your fault. It might have been, it might not have been, but I made ten different choices in the course of this going on, and I thought they were all reasonable. Um, but maybe somebody else would have done something, and so, therefore on that this mm-hmm. So yeah, it would be lovely if I mean that's kind of like being an adult too. I mean like everybody you know, we go through our days and we make our choices or being a parent or whatever. And it'd be so nice if someone could say to you like you're doing a great job. Like that was the best you could have done in that situation. But it doesn't really feel like that. <laughs> and I think patients can feel that too. Um, Somebody in my family recently was deciding whether or not to have an operation. And there were two doctors, and one recommended the operation, one recommended against the operation. And they thought about it, and they decided not to do the operation. And when they told the doctor who recommended the operation, it was so interesting to observe that doctor's response. Um, There was some defensiveness. There was some ego. and, And, you know... I'd be curious afterward if uh, any patients in the audience have had experiences where they picked up on, you know, that thin glass shell that you're talking about. I I do feel like patients can sense that, and um, you know, sometimes doctors get a bad rap, and and I can see why that is because it's not good for patients either to have physicians walking around in these thin glass shells with, like, you know their entire self-worth hinging on every little moment and every little error and so how do we move to a more relaxed place a place of trust a place of groundedness and you know that some of that is internal work but some of that work is also at the level of the system and the culture and bigger bigger fish
1: yeah we spoke about that a lot when making the series is like i think that is the way to get lay people interested in this is because it's like how does shame that doctors feel affect patients like what is the downstream effect of all the shame within, you know, doctors and nurses. Does it does it move down the patients and start affecting them negatively?
2: Definitely, I mean, undoubtedly. Um think for probably a lot of reasons, I might just suggest a couple. I think um, if I, I'm in education, so one of the big the big stains on our profession is the ways in which our learners are often treated in our environments. I mean, it is just a massive paradox that exists, it's actually, it's actually a moral issue, in my opinion, where learners are mistreated during the course of becoming a doctor. Right? They're humiliated, they're, they're marginalized, they're put down, they're put through unnecessarily rigorous questioning. Um, sometimes, with the intention of teaching them, right? it's all misguided, right? it's not, there's a, certainly a better way to teach them than to shame them or attempt to shame them but sometimes to actually shame them, to actually put them into a lower position. Because for whatever reason, I need you to be there for me to feel better about myself. And I think there's a cyclical nature of that. If you were the recipient of a lot of shame as a physician in your training, it's, you know, we don't know this for sure, but you can imagine that it might be more likely that you would be other people because it's been normalized to you. That can't be a behavior that is just isolated to learners. If, if you are viewing relationships with vulnerable people and learners are vulnerable people and treating them in that manner you are very likely doing that to other vulnerable people like patients and and you know, shame is a major motivator of behavior change and some out there might advocate that shaming patients to get them to change their behaviors in the form of better health is is reasonable i mean i would absolutely disagree but I don't think this is a, a tendency or a type of behavior that we can turn off for some and turn on for others. Because so I think patients do do are very vulnerable, and and whether we intend to or not, they are victims at times of our own um, mental health issues, our own tendencies, our own distress, uh, and I don't think there's been enough attention paid to the effect of that distress on our patients.
0: I totally agree. I feel again through the lens through which I normally look at it, um, a physician who's operating in shame um, tends to do a few, there's a few themes that come up. One is um, analysis paralysis, where they're just constantly trying to figure out, like I don't, you know, once upon a time, perhaps I would have just been able to say, like, okay, this is my executive decision, this is the way that we should go. And that decision-making capacity gets completely degraded, um, where they're just terrified of making a mistake and then you can't move forward in any particular direction or a procedure that it's, let's say, that they were doing um, an operation and a particular thing went wrong unexpectedly, uh, when they try to come back and perform and do that, it's very, very difficult for them. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of, there are a lot of PTSD symptoms that play into that. And that's, it would be very unfortunate to be the patient in that circumstance, but that is unfortunately how things align. Um, it comes to bear in their relationships overall with patients because one of the things that happens is that physicians feel this need to them, you know, they, they might have been open-hearted um, and really welcoming of this relationship with the patient and had a feeling of mutual trust. And then when that mutual trust is sort of, you know, decimated by an event that happens that brings them shame and makes them feel bad, and it makes them pull away from those relationships. Um, it makes them put up barriers, which is unfortunately, very much contributed to burnout because when you can't invest your whole self in the the emotional benefits of having those relationships, the work tends to become less and less and less meaningful. And you'll feel that as a patient. Like, you'll know when your doctor is detached and not invested. I mean, on paper, they'll be like, oh, you have your numbers say this, I do this treatment, but they're not going to spend a lot of time really getting to know you and so all those benefits of those relationships are sort of are sort of pulled back by this person who is really just trying to hold themselves together and put one foot in front of the other on any given day. Um, and so I think that the the impacts are, are myriad and not good. Um but again just the ability to have some awareness and where those conversations come in is, as I said before, I couldn't have told you that was shame. I couldn't have I, I could not identify like what, what these feelings were. Um, but giving means to them gives us some degree of authority and the ability to stand outside of ourselves and say, how is this affecting my relationship with my patients? How is this affecting my relationship with my spouse, my family, because there's carryover into all of those things. Um, is this the way, I know this is the way I was taught to be but is this the way that I need to stay?
1: Yeah, so speaking, telling the story, is so much a part of the, of the, of the healing of getting through it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's... I think when, Emily, you told me you're making a podcast about shame, it seemed like a terrible idea. It seems like no one wants to tune into a podcast about shame. But I think there's something, like, really, really important there, because storytelling and shame pair up really profoundly. I mean, it's like, it's part of the process, right?
0: Yeah, there's... This interesting alchemy, where telling one's shame story itself becomes an intervention, because when you throw sunlight on shame, it it disinfects. Um, you know, this isn't always the case. We should not feel like the solution is just to bear all of our deepest, darkest secrets and to do that indiscriminately. Because sometimes you do have to just pick and choose who you share with and who you don't, and protect yourself. And there's you know real risk of ramification. Um, but uh, if you make a choice to share, um, that can be hugely therapeutic, not just for you, but for the, the audience or the listener or the person you're sharing with. And that can be on a large scale, like through this series where we had a couple hundred clinicians send us their shame stories and then aired that for our audience of you know thousands of healthcare workers. But even on a one-on-one setting, um, you know, if you're struggling with mental health and thinking about taking an antidepressant, for example, uh, we had one person who sat down with her mentor and her mentor said, "You know, when I was in residency, I was going through a hard time, and I actually also uh, went on an antidepressant. And then suddenly, it's like, oh, and that stigma kind of melts away, and that shame melts away. And so that's just one example. I think of how, um, you know, sharing your story um, can really make an impact, and and modeling that that storytelling or modeling that openness, um, like you were saying, breaking that cycle—that's the intergenerational cycle." of physicians where it's sort of like, I was abused, therefore I abuse you. Um, you can really break that cycle by by modeling um, vulnerability and storytelling with your younger um, generations, and, but also with peers. And frankly, also with the older generation. Um, we had a, a, a webinar with some of our shame ambassadors, which we call clinicians who are interested in this topic. And you know, one of them, she said, you know, I've been in medicine for 25 years, and please don't forget about me. Um, you can teach an old dog new tricks, like older generations can change. Um, and so don't lose faith in us because even if we've been indoctrinated and inculcated into this culture, um, we're interested in hearing what you have to say as well. So I actually, I think in all directions, that that sharing and storytelling can, can really make an impact. Yeah, very much so. I totally agree. I actually have spoken to a number of physicians who are later in their careers and then with litigation have never talked to anybody about, what their experiences felt like, and they still carry a lot of it. Actually, I actually have a couple of clients who were sued maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago and still sort of find themselves constricted in the way that they practice and relate with patients because of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think the healing can come at all levels, and um, it's just allowing them to be a little more vocal about their stories, and that's going to help everybody coming up behind them in the sort of generational way that you mentioned Um, because what I feel like what we're really deprived of when we come up because everyone's trained to act a certain way and hide certain behaviors and pretend that certain things aren't happening is to we don't really have any direction so like when I work with my clients I talk about grief and so grief is one of those emotions that everybody kind of gets, right? You may not have had anyone who died in your life that was close to you, but you've seen it models in movies and in books and you know people that it's happened to you and you watch them work through it and you know that it's going to suck when it happens to you, but there might be hope because look at that person over there, like a terrible thing happened to them and they lost their child and somehow they're moving on and so you, you, you have this, these role models of resilience. Um, we don't in medicine. And so we have these terrible experiences, or feel the shame, or we make a mistake, or we feel like we hurt somebody, or something terrible happened to someone on our watch. And nobody that's come ahead of us has ever talked about what that feels like, or how to deal with it. They just seem to automatically know. Um, but they don't. We just feel bad because we don't also know how to automatically know. And... Um, And that's another source of shame. But now, the more people who can talk about that and model, like, this is how I got through it, or watch me as I go through this, like, walk with me um, and see. Um, I think that's where the real change in culture lies. I was just going to say, for your second trial, you invited your trainees, residents, learners to come to trial and watch you testify. And
1: mm-hmm. when I hear
0: that, even just saying it now, like my heart opens because I imagine being one of those residents sitting and watching you testify and just how, like you said, seeing somebody on TV grieving the loss of a child, like just kind of having that in my bank, my mental bank of um, role models would go such a long way. Um, and so I'm. that was an example, I think, of modeling vulnerability, you know, sort of through storytelling i mean you're sitting (laughs) on the stand defending yourself telling your story your version of the story at least yeah um yeah i I thought that was such a great example it was thank you and it was fascinating because um only a handful of residents came and i mean maybe like six or seven um and some of them had excuses like oh i was on ship that day or whatever but i had known what day it was going to be And then a couple that I knew well, I was just like, where were you? And they were like, I couldn't. I just couldn't. I I was just so scared. I just can't. And so then there was, of course, a conversation of, like, if you cannot watch me do this, like, how are you going to do it? Um, But there really was this whole, like, I can't even, like, I can't even watch you go through that um, because it makes me think about it happening to me, and I cannot go there. Uh, So there's still a lot
2: of work to do. (laughs) Um, shame, like I said earlier, is a normal human emotion. And therefore, our capacity to experience it, it makes us human. It's it's, an, it's a reminder, if not a proof, of our humanity. And so when we disallow ourselves to experience shame, we feel shame for feeling the emotion. Or when our environments or our, the people around us tell us we should not be feeling it. Tell us we're weak for feeling it. That is fundamentally dehumanizing. It is dehumanizing to not be allowed to experience our, our shame. And I, that's just one form of the many ways I think that physicians may feel dehumanized in the course of our work. Um, there's a whole host of other things. And there's a real distress that can be developed with that because we are in the business of trying to help other people uh, achieve their health and their goals and dehumanize them And yet at the same time we may be feeling increasingly dehumanized in our work and this is where storytelling is really powerful because storytelling is a uniquely human endeavor i mean our capacity and ability to tell stories is really differentiates us from just about any other animal and it's one of the things that led to the evolution of the sapien species the ability to tell stories and so it is fundamentally humanizing so, if we can match the ability to tell a story with the willingness to allow our shame, to talk about our shame, to, to bond over our shame, we, we innately make ourselves more human. And, and I think that's one of the most powerful healing processes we can go through. It also holds with patients. If, if we, we have a huge ability or opportunity to be humanized by our patients. I mean, some of the times I feel the best about myself are the way I'm treated by my patients. And so while, while patients may sometimes be the recipients of our distress, they can also be part of the solution for our distress. And that requires vulnerability. It requires that I be open with them, just the way sometimes they're open with me, that I be imperfect with them or I show emotion with them, just like I expect them or hope that they'll show it with me. And whether it's our patients, whether it's our colleagues, whether it's sending in a, a story on a podcast, that, the vulnerability that comes from shared experience, especially of these humanizing experiences like shame, is, is potentially transformative. And so our question is, I guess, to you, to us, is that how do we do that on a large scale in healthcare? How do we do that? Is it a matter of being the norm, being this, the new ideology that we try to build and infuse into, the, into the, work we do and the training that we, we create.
1: Well, and the receiving of, of shame stories matters too, right? It's like if you just shout them into the void, it has some value, but it has to be received. Is there like a, does it matter how it's received? You know
0: Like I said, whether it's one- on one or one on a thousand or 10,000, um, it's just about that interface. And in some ways I feel like the one-on-one interface can be just as powerful and intimate as the one- on a thousand interface. Um, but it's about that encounter and that's what the storytelling really is is when you listen to a story, you're transported. Um, it's kind of like sitting in a flight simulator, you get to go places, that you've never been, or maybe that you could never go, but you do it through the vehicle of this other person's story and this other person's experience, and um, and then you get to take your experience and map it on to that other person's experience, and then where those two things touch, that's kind of like where the magic happens. And so I do think that it has to be a, a two-way a, a dialogue, you know. Um, thinking of something like journaling, for example, like that's, you know, if it's private, it may not have an audience and that may be just for you. Um, but I do think having that warm, receptive energy on the other side is, for me anyway, completes the circle and allows for like the full energetic release of the story. And so I, I don't think that the scale matters. Again, I think um, talking to a friend, a colleague, um, the question of how to scale it is really interesting. Like how how do we, um, spark what really what we're describing in some ways is a cultural revolution of sorts, um, not to make it sound too scary and dramatic. I think there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful things about medical culture that we want to keep, that we want to hold on to. But then figuring out, okay, which pieces of it do we want to change, and then and then how to scale that up. And so um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. I do. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting, on the small scale, In medicine, and and this may be true elsewhere, but, um, so, you know, somewhere along the way, you learn the difference between sympathy and empathy. And when I was sort of getting used to the, like, being able to say, like, oh, I'm being sued, or, oh, you know, it was a pretty, it was a, a very significant event that happened to a young woman, and it wound up being a $28 million demand, and my policy was $1 million, so, um, there were a lot of talks in a lot of places, like hospital level, like blah, 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 what are we gonna lose, like what if we lose? Well, and so all of it, all of this is happening about you. And so the feeling I got initially when people knew my story was again, this sort of feeling about being judged, but there were lots of people from admin who were coming and saying like, that they were sorry this was happening to me. And it was very much this feeling of like, I feel I feel bad for you over there you person that this is happening to. It never happened to me, of course, but You know but i am trying to like they're there you and that was not a good feeling um it's a very different feeling to be received in empathy by people who really if it's not happening to them they know that it could or a group of people who you know who understand that experience and feel it with you um and that somehow i don't i don't know whether this is just me but the the ability to have compassion for yourself for me was really tied up into can other people have empathy for me? Do other, Is there a role for compassion for the physician in this role even though somebody else has suffered? Um, and being able to come to terms with that was a lot of it was just this feeling of like, oh, there are other people who actually have compassion for me and empathize with me and the story is now being received um, by other people with whom it resonates. and so. There is some degree of scale that's required, I think, till you get to that point. Um, because otherwise we're just all sort of kept in our place and then there's a lot of there there from bad men or whomever. Um, and that's not going to do the trick. Um, and so in some ways when you talk about a revolution, it is almost like any other revolution that comes out from shame. And so, you know, thinking about things like the Me Too, movement, um, there are people who tell their stories and you know they're sort of shouting into the void but there's not a lot going along with that and then there's this steady increase in the like no me too, no me too, no me too where then people who might not have had that experience can start to look at it a different way and see um, that perhaps as a society we have been looking at something the wrong way that's it. i think i think that's what we're hoping to do
2: environment matters I mean, as well i think Inter- interpersonally trust empathy shared experience shared vulnerability are crucial for telling and having your story received um, in a constructive way <clears throat> the, the environment in which that interaction occurs also matters and one there's been amy edmondson from the business world has talked a lot increasingly about psychological safety um, just really powerful work. It's essentially the, my, my willingness or perceived willingness to be able to take risks in my environment that may bring with it some sort of um, risk of being seen a certain way, being seen as disrupted, um, being seen as incompetent, and that the greater, the more psychological safety I feel, the more willing I am to engage with those risks. Uh, speak up, just to uh, try new things, etc. I have a colleague named Justin Bullock who I know Emily knows and he's an amazing guy up at the University of Washington who's taking that construct a step further and I think this is where some of this revolution occurs into the notion of identity safety. Not just is it safe for me to speak up here, but is it safe for me to be me? Can I be myself in this environment? Can I show things about me that maybe uh, haven't traditionally been shown in these environments or that I feel the need to hide? I think shame and identity safety are probably tightly linked The lower degrees of identity safety to higher my um, chances of feeling shame and this is where coming back to my story and I've learned this having done this research and spoken with a lot of people who do not have the same level of identity safety as I do in medicine I've come to understand the incredible emotional privilege that I have as a white man in medicine having been brought up in a system that was developed for and by people like me that any shame I've experienced, any identity challenge I've experienced, I've had the privilege of experiencing while being a part of the dominant union, while never being misunderstood, misgendered, um, you know, thought of as anything but a physician. And, and that's where I think we need revolution, because we have got to ensure that in this pressure cooker of learning and practicing medicine, and all that it brings with it at an intrapersonal level, People have got to feel safe being themselves in our environment. Our patients deserve that and demand it. Um, and our training pipelines demand it. And I think we as, as people going through these really challenging experiences, we should be able to.
1: We only have a couple minutes left. I want to make sure there's a chance for uh, questions, if you guys have any. Really? Um I have one more, and it's that I think we avoided solutions when we... What was the question? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't realize it was like a coming to the microphone. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead.
3: Hi, this is such a fantastic session. I learned so much. Um, I'm really curious um, about how the teaching now, in this era where AI in mind and the knowledge was right in the to be going to chat or that's coming kind of like I mean, right like, hey, in the street, and like, actually, okay, and to get really bad, and to get really bad, and to get really And so our curriculum of medical education which rests very much on this idea of sharing as a motive to get you to you know, work harder, do the right thing, don't school, um, and the constant pressure that we feel
0: I've totally drank the AI kool aid. <laughs> I think it's such a fascinating topic so interested in how AI is gonna inform medical practice in, gosh, five, 10, 20 years. And it makes me think of a couple of things. So one is what you said, Gita, about how in medicine, we're always operating in areas of gray and we're making decisions and we're sort of um, making those decisions based on our experience, our training, everything we've seen, everything we know. And if we're able to collectivize physician knowledge and, and build these decision support tools, and sort of spread the risk um, and make a clinical decision with that backing of all of that data and, and you know that support, might that have a positive impact on the weight of the shame of, you know, did I make a mistake? Well, you're going to sue me. you got to sue also the million people whose data was fed into the algorithm that helped me make my decision. So that would be a really interesting shift to look at is, you know, how do we think they about They not be suing those people. <laughs>
3: How do we think about
0: decision support (laughs) tools and and litigation and errors and and just decision-making? I think that's super interesting. And then the other is just thinking about standardized tests. So we talk a lot in our series about, in particular, one of the tests, the USMLE Step 1 test, which is basically a memorization challenge. It's like, you know, you watch the Olympics on TV. You might as well be watching um, a medical student take the USMLE Step 1. It's really kind of a memorization Olympics where a lot of it is problem solving but also a lot of it is useless memorization and regurgitation and when we're you know comparing medicine 20 years ago to how it is today there's just so much more to, to know now than there was I think you know back in the 80s and 90s maybe there were 30 or 40 medications to know and now you know there's medications there's processes there's surgeries, there's procedures, there's robotics, there's all of this. And there's just no possible way that a single physician could hold all of that in their mind. Um, and so, how do we think about um, decentralizing medical knowledge? You know, um, having it live outside of our mind, and then really saving all of that, you know, precious uh, mind processing power—not so much for memorization, but for, um, yeah, again, decision making, using tools. And it'd be very interesting to see how the shame landscape shifts once we're able to use some of this technology to support physicians in their work. Um, I find it very heartening that ChatGPT did not get hundred percent on that exam, <laughs> but it did pass. <laughs> it did pass. But even with all of the all of the information, what that means to me is that there's still a space for people who like have a lot of judgment and experience and can work in the gray. Um, and so we're not obsolete yet but it is very heartening to think that like this massive knowledge beast did not achieve perfection
2: yeah we also need to I think we're gonna just need to be very critical about what AI can do for us and how we harness that and what probably it shouldn't try to do it, medicine will always fundamentally be and healthcare will always be a human endeavor and and there is a degree of human connection that has to be maintained as we, as we embark kind of on this new frontier, really, of, of AI. Um, I, I wonder a little bit about how it's going to change the identity of a physician and, and how we see ourselves. I mean, already, there's, I think there's algorithms that are being pushed for replacing radiologists in reading certain types of imaging studies because they make less errors, they see more. And we should want that because it means more patients get diagnosed, treated earlier, et cetera. But what does that mean if you're a radiologist? And now you're, there's some element of your skill you've worked your whole life for that's replaceable. So it's gonna be complicated and, and exciting. And I think we need to, maybe the theme, one of the things coming out of this panel is just we need to keep in touch with that deeper human, deeper self-conscious level at which shame and these emotions occur as we build greater and greater capacity and health i not a
3: friends and I did cross training with medical students and masters. Um, and actually I go back to the point I'm also a PM or patient. And I I can't say here that as a patient one of my most shameful experiences in this decade that I've received care was when I was eighteen and coming out of um, recovery from my optimal surgery and I came mm-hmm. up against brick wall of a physician who's, you know, wounded an 18-year-old teenager with an attitude and feeling very, like, out of my body. Um, so, yeah, that definitely does fall down. But I will also say that I've encountered so many wonderful practitioners nurses, kids and physicians who you can know, feel that like they feel very, like, centered in themselves, and that allows them to show up more for you as a patient than Using your service to kind of where you go. That was just a, a comment I wanted earlier. But my question is as someone not kind of having kind of grown up professionally in this environment, it feels seems like mental health should be at the forefront. I have a lot of friends who are a residency now. Um, like mental health should be at the forefront, but there's an institutional pushback because there's kind of a worry that like they'll lose the edge if you're not kind of people, you'll, like, things
0: will slip if you get to more than 5 so to say. That's a, that's a really interesting and very multifaceted question. There is a 1,000% pushback against getting mental health help or at least perhaps institutionally the barest amount of lip service. I think now organizations are paying attention because physicians are leaving in droves or they're dying by suicide. And so, I mean, in medicine we have a huge suicide problem. We have probably the highest uh, rate of suicide among occupations. And um, in general, we take our lives at twice the rate of the general population, women particularly more than men. Um, And so now at least that we're having these open conversations about it, people are feeling a little more empowered, except that there are at the licensure levels hospital privileges, uh, departments of licensure for each state, um, retain the right to ask intrusive questions about your having received mental health help. And if they deem you to have required too much help or if they want to know more about whether or not you're fit to practice medicine, they are absolutely judge, jury, everything all at once, and so there is a huge fear. And so this has been studied to some extent. Um, there was a study of surgeons that showed in the year before, sixteen percent, I think, was the number, had ha- percent of them had had suicidal ideations, and of those people, you know, the grand majority said they would never seek help because they were afraid of what it would do to their career. Um, and so we have a long way to go. There's a group called All In um, that is doing some work on this, mm-hmm. on reforming the medical licensure process. Because you do hear stories of physicians literally getting in their car, driving to another state, and getting mental health care under a false name because they're afraid um, that if they don't do that, they'll lose the ability to be a physician because they sought help. But this is changing um, state by state. The states are reforming their questioning and how they how they ask the questions. Um, And so there is a lot of work being done in that realm. And a lot of that was sparked by the suicide of Dr. Lorna Breen, an emergency medicine physician in New York who died by suicide during COVID. And her uh, brother-in-law, Corey Feist, he's really taken on this cause of licensure and Mm -hmm. and kind of destigmatizing the seeking of mental health care among clinicians. And they're doing a lot of great work and advocacy on that front. But it's really in its infancy. You're right, mental health care, especially in a high stakes profession like this, which is so life and death and so entangled with identity, should absolutely be at the forefront, um, but it isn't, uh, but it's also changing. Right, so the question, thank you for the question, is you know how hard is too hard to push around things like standardized tests, things of that nature? I have two thoughts. First is, you made the comparison to athletes, and I mentioned the Olympics earlier. In some ways, right now, medicine is set up to recruit the elite athletes of test-taking. And that may not be all good or all bad. I think if you, if you think about that as like an evolutionary selection pressure and you say, okay, if that's the filter, who's let in? You end up with all of these elite Olympic test-takers. and But then you think, well, who are we leaving out? Who, who could have been here that may have done fine on the test, maybe not perfect score, but you know, fine, and have you know, great things to offer the profession, who we're leaving out. And so, so one question is like using the test as a filter for who's able to come into the profession. And Will actually speaks beautifully on this. And then the other is this thought that the score that you get um, dictates your uh, who you can be. So you know, if I get above this score, then I can be anything I want. But if I get below that score. I can only be a primary care doctor, and you know, primary care doctors, bottom of the barrel. No one wants to be a primary care. I want to be a dermatologist. I want to be a radiologist. And so, kind of stratifying um, even medical specialties based on the score and what you can get into. So, if it starts to become less even about the score and more about um, what your score means about who you can become, and maybe I'll turn it over to you, Will, because you. And just to be clear, I think primary care docs should be the bedrock of American medicine. Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to comment on that. I think there's a, we've identified in our research, especially in pre-medical students, uh, as what I would call a values misalignment between the values that are driving our emissions processes. And those are very heavily weighted towards test taking, the ability to achieve a certain GPA, um, essentially, the ability to build a, an objectively um, defined resume, objectively defined by numbers, and then what the practice of medicine requires in terms of these values, which really don't have a lot to do with the ability to take a test, you know, or to achieve a GPA or build a resume. It's about people, it's about adaptive thinking, it's about, you know, resilience, uh, vulnerability, all these things. So, I think that there is, um, to your point, we are selecting for certain behaviors and maybe traits that then maybe aren't as needed later or um when a different set of traits is needed that we may not have selected for people really struggle and, and their identities are kind of it, say, uh, in, in their uh, kind of in their uh, they're hanging in their the balance. what one perspective i just want to offer as a residency firm director um is one of the reasons i think it's hard to make changes like you're talking about to say do we really need people to study for a 30 straight days for a test do we really need um to have a, a residency system where you can work no more than 80 hours that you can work every bit up to 80 hours a week i mean you tell people outside of healthcare that, that the limitation is 80 hours and crazy that you can't work more than 28 hours in a row and they think you're crazy and people works 28 hours in a row in the process of their training
0: except the old docs complain the old docs like me are like i didn't have duty hours how dare you have duty hours? Like you're not gonna learn if you have dirty hours. Like you should be in you should be there 120 hours a week, because no how are you gonna learn? But and that's
2: and just the reason. <laughs> the reason eighty hours a week is, is a reduction, right? It's a it's t- a kinder environment. The reason we are so scared to go lower than that is that we don't know how that will affect patients down the road. That we we only know what we have known to date and we see that it works and we think it does. And so there's a huge unknown, of the, well, if you only require people to work 40 hours a week over 3 years instead of 80, we don't think we're going to make as good of doctors. So there's some assumptions built into these decisions that working more hours in the hospital makes a better doctor. Now, many of us would refute that. But it's, it's a very difficult unknown that we're up against in terms of making major systemic changes because we do worry about what the downstream effects will do on the public.
0: And also this question of like how hard is too hard, you know, because we do want to push people, you know, we want to push ourselves enough that we're able to encounter our own greatness. Um, but how do you do that and not and not overdo that? It's it's just a very a subtle question. Um, and I don't really know how to like put a box around that and say, you know, this number of hours is enough and this number of hours isn't. Um, it's, it's just very complicated and um, you're right, I do think that we, we should be pushing ourselves in some way but right now I think we've definitely the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction mm-hmm. and medicine is just, the whole house is so steeped in tradition and we do things this way because we've always done them this way and you shouldn't really think about changing those things is the way we're sort of taught to think, I'm hoping that we're on the cusp of maybe pushing back against that a little bit Um, And also there's financial incentives for the companies that create these tests and things like that and really it's a very They're very expensive tests. There's there's a lot of money uh, that goes into these tests Um, and There's really not enough incentive for them to change Um, so It's probably not going to happen fast and same thing with the 80 hours We can talk all day about how it's because we need to learn. It's because we need to learn but also It's cheap labor for the hospital
2: What We asked you the program director briefly is that 80 hours a week, is the system is set up for residents to work a certain way right now. I mean, you can't, the whole system, the whole healthcare system, I and mean, the academic healthcare system, you can't just suddenly say our residents are gonna work half the amount of time, right? Uh, it's just, it couldn't work. So my philosophy is within these somewhat dehumanizing structures of like making people work that much and not sleep you can do other things, can we at least humanize them while they're at work? Can we at least help them be whole at work? And, and this is where the shame piece really is important, that, and help them navigate the like shame while they're working really rigorous pipelines, and I think that's where we might find um, more opportunity for wellness. and, and I
1: think that's a good. Sorry, I, I think we have to wrap it up. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, but we can we can talk afterwards. Um, so thanks to Will, Emily, and Gita. This is really fun. Thanks, thank for thank you, Sam.